Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 23, and we're going to begin reading in verse 32, Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, beginning our reading in verse 32. Beginning in verse 32, we read, And there were also two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he be Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. Well, we're looking these Sunday evenings in the run up to Easter at the seven sayings of the cross. And we come tonight to the second such saying of the Lord Jesus from the cross. Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. It was a word of grace to a man in need, to a man who, recognizing his hopeless condition before God, cried out for mercy and was saved at the last. Now, if we, of course, we know that the day Jesus died, he was crucified between two thieves. Why the Roman soldiers chose to arrange the crucifixions that way, we don't know, at least from their point of view. But as far as the plan of God was concerned, this was in the Father's will all along. For writing some 700 years before this, Isaiah the prophet, foreseeing Christ, saw him as being numbered with the transgressors. And so he was treated that day as a common criminal, put to death, as an evil man. That's what the word malefactor means. He was an evil man. He was counted among the transgressors, the very worst of the transgressors. For we can be sure that when the Bible tells us these men were thieves, they were not likely petty thieves, nor even were they the kind of thief that steals because he has some need. But they were violent robbers who had harmed people in the course of their crimes and were made an example of by the Roman authorities being put to death that day. Now, of the three men that died that day, we learn something about what it is 
to be saved and what it is to be lost and how that we may be saved. If we consider the first man in verse 39, the unrepentant thief, we discover there in verse 39 a man who died in sin. It says, And one of the malefactors which were hanged reeled on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. Now I want to tell you something tonight, and and this is certainly something that bears true in the many years of my ministry, and I've witnessed this numerous times. What you'll find is that people largely die as they lived. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean that they often die in the same condition, in the same mind, in the same situation that they've always been in life. Here was a man who was close to Christ. In terms of proximity, he was no further away from him uh, than his companion. He heard the same sounds. He saw the same sights. He was a witness to the death of the Savior under exactly the same conditions as the other, faced with exactly the same circumstances. He had the same opportunity as his friend. Yet one man died and was lost and the other man died forgiven. You say, well, how can that be? Well, friends, the same sun that melts the ice is the sun also that hardens the clay. And it all has to do with the heart. The Bible says that this fellow reeled on Christ. That is, he cursed him to his face. He hurled abuse at him. He derided him. Uh, He had nothing good to say about him. He hurled every kind of filthy insult the Savior's way and called into question his power to see it. Now, why would he do that? When you think about where he was, you think about his circumstances, why would you do that? You think that he would show a measure of of empathy or sympathy uh, with uh, his fellow sufferer. You think he would say, well, you know, I'm in pain and he's in pain. I'm dying and he's dying. And he would have some sorrow in his heart or or some humanity about him that that would indeed try to reach out in some way to Christ. But I want you to understand something about the cross. You see, in religious imagery, the cross is often portrayed as this huge structure, perhaps maybe uh, 20 feet high, and and you'll see the Savior and his feet are away up here, and you see the people gathered around, and they're looking up at the cross like this, and Jesus is way above them. But that's not how it was. If you understand that when the Romans crucified people, for a start, they very, very rarely actually brought out a whole cross and put it up. They more often than not just pinned somebody to a tree. And very often, uh, indeed almost always, the, the victim, his feet would have been only about so high from the ground. So that as he hung there with his feet just about a foot from the ground, as he hung there and his, and his head was hanging down, the crowd beneath would be able to get into his face. And they'd be able to abuse him. And hurl all kinds of curses at him. And say what they wanted about him. And so you can imagine the scene here. As this crowd is venting its ire upon the Lord Jesus. As they are as they're focusing upon him. As the one who is the chief troublemaker among the three. The fellow who begins to hurl abuse at him. Realizes that whilst they're concentrating on Christ. Whilst this crowd is spitting upon him. And calling him every kind of dirty name. That he himself was getting away with this abuse. So there may have been a little bit of self-preservation here. And I want you to notice something else about this man in verse 39. 
He lived for this world. Notice what he says to the Savior. He says, if thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. Now, he's not thinking about eternal salvation here. He's thinking only about physical salvation. In many respects, he's no different from the fellow uh, whom Paul mentions in 2 Timothy chapter 4 by the name of Demas, a professing Christian. And he says that Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. Very often that is preached in the sense that Demas was a worldly Christian. But actually what it was, he didn't want to be associated with Paul in death because he feared that he himself might be subject to the the same punishment. And so, loving this life, having loved this present world, he was willing to forsake Christ. Well, this man also loved this present world. When he says, if thou be the Christ, save thyself and us, what he's saying is, help us to escape from our predicament. Help us to get off of this tree. Uh, He's thinking only of of the physical world. He's only concerned with what little time he had on this earth and how he might be able to extend it. He was living for this world without any thought of eternity. And many there be who are like him. Yet the Bible says what? Love not the world. Now the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Here he was on the edge of eternity, certain that he was going to die, and yet he couldn't find it in his heart to call out to the Savior for forgiveness. In fact, instead of calling out, he curses him and he ridicules him. You see, very often people die as they live. Look with me in the book of Revelation, if you will, in chapter 16. I want you to take, to, take you to the book of Revelation and chapter 16. Here we're in the last throes of God's judgment toward the end of the tribulation, the great tribulation period. And I want you to observe something very interesting about the men who were subject to the most horrific judgments, the men who are yet to be subject to these most horrific judgments. And I want you to notice their response in chapter 16 of Revelation and verse Here the fourth angel has poured out his vial, his bowl upon the sun, and power is given over unto him to scorch men with fire. And we read, and men were scorched with great heat, and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues, and they repented not to give him the glory. It's not interesting. You would think that having been scorched with a great heat, having realized that they were subject to supernatural judgment, That they may cry out to God and beg for his forgiveness and petition him for his mercy. But far from it. Instead we read that they blasphemed the name of God. The fifth angel has the same response in verse 10. And the fifth angel poured out his vial, his bowl upon the seed of the beast. And his kingdom was full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues for pain. Verse 11 says what? And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and repented not of their deeds. You see, there was no change in them. They died as they had lived. They were blasphemers in life and they were blasphemers in death. Verse 17, we read of the seventh angel pouring out his vial into the air and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings. There was a great earthquake such as was not since men were upon the earth. So mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away 
away and the mountains were not found and there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven every stone about the weight of a talent there's hail falling the size of cannonballs upon the earth thumping the ground and, and no doubt destroying property and even taking lives and what do you find there it says and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail for the plague thereof was exceeding green. You see, although men may recognize the hand of God in their judgment, though they may realize that they are going to face their maker, it is often the case that men will die exactly as they lived. A number of years ago, I remember, we had a man in our church, a lovely, lovely Christian man, He worked for his father. His father was a market gardener. And he'd worked for his father since his teenage days. And it was understood that when his father would pass away from this scene of time, he would give over the family business to this man and to his brother. But in between times, this man trusted Christ as his Savior. And his father was outraged that he would become a believer and uh, he treated him abysmally the whole time. Wouldn't hear anything he had to say. Finally, the old man was dying. And the son came to him to witness to him and to pray for him. And he dismissed him out of hand and blasphemed the Lord and told him to, to go away and, and not to come back and bother him with these things. And then he said he was going to cut him out of his will. And that's what he did, you know. He cut him out of the will. And even though he spent all of his life building the family business along with his brother, everything the old man owned was passed over to his unsaved brother. And he was left without nothing in this world. I went to the funeral of this man out of respect for his son. And I listened as the minister came to the pulpit. And he began to eulogize the deceased. And he began to say, well, this was his favorite Bible verse. And he read a particular Bible verse. And he began to say, this was his favorite hymn as he led the congregation on a hymn. You know, I was, I was beginning to think I was at the wrong funeral. In fact, they almost lifted the lid to check to see if it was the right person. What a nonsense. What lies this man wearing a clerical collar was telling one lie after another, trying to sanctify this man, trying to somehow or other press gang him into heaven. And at one point they invited up his old friend, his best friend, and his best friend came to the podium and he said this, and I remember this, he said, I'll tell you this, he says, I'm his best friend and I'll tell you the truth about him. He says, that man cared for nothing but money. That's what his best friend said. I thought, isn't it shocking that his best friend tells the truth? And the minister told lies. Now friends, listen. It doesn't matter how people, uh, how people might, you might think people might change when they're faced with the end. People very often remain as they are in the end. And no amount of eulogizing you in death will change one iota your eternal destiny. You see, the Bible says this. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Listen, friend, if you die with, if you live without Christ, the chances are you're going to die without Christ. truth is we won't escape. This thief in Luke 23 did not escape the judgment of God and indeed he's in hell to this very hour. Ruining that day whenever he was just a short 
few short feet away from the Savior and missed his opportunity to be saved. He died in sin. But then I want you to notice in verse 40 of Luke chapter 23, the second thief who died to sin says that, but the other answering rebuked him saying, dost not thou fear God, saying thou art in the same condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Now, although Luke doesn't detail it, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that at first this thief behaved exactly as his friend did. That he catcalled Christ, that he ridiculed the Savior, that he cursed him, and, and, uh, and that he behaved exactly as his, as his companion in crime had done. But you come to Luke's gospel here and you see that something has changed. You see this man has had a change of mind. We call that repentance. That's what repentance is. Repentance is a change of mind. I think differently about myself and my sin. I think differently about the God before whom I shall stand. I think differently about the Christ of God who gave his life for me. And so this man began to see himself and his friend quite differently and he realized that he had been wrong about Jesus. You say, well, how did that happen? I want to give you a couple of suggestions. The first of these is this. He may well have read Pilate's tract. If you look in verse 38 of this chapter, we find that there was a superscription also written over him in letters of Greek, over Jesus, in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew, saying this is the king of the Jews. John says this is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. It was like a gospel tract. You see, here's the way it worked. When, when you were condemned to death in Bible times and you were sent to the cross, you would have been paraded through town to the outskirts of the city and beyond to the place of your death. There would have been around you four soldiers, two in front, two in back, and then ahead of them a fifth soldier who would have held up the charge that you were guilty of, supposedly, so that the people could condemn you when you came to the site of crucifixion that they, could, that they could be appalled by your behavior, that they could, that they could even like we did in, in Britain and in, in the British Isles many years ago, used to put people in stocks and their crime was recorded and you could hurl abuse at them and throw rotten fruit at them. Same idea. And so Jesus, you know, these two men, they came with a, with a sign that would have said, well, I'm a thief and a robber, perhaps a murderer. But Jesus came holding a sign that said, This is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And when they got to the side of the cross, having nailed Jesus to the tree, a Roman soldier would have climbed up and he would have nailed that sign above his head so that anybody who was witness to this event would know what it was this middle man had been charged with. And it may well be that this thief thought about that as he observed the scene and as he thought about what he was witnessing. He may have read that sign. He may have seen it en route to the cross and thought to himself, maybe this really is the king of the Jews. Maybe this really is the Messiah we've been waiting for. Maybe this really is the Christ of God. But then he was also witness to Jesus' forgiveness. We talked about this last Sunday evening when he prayed, Father, forgive them. 
for they know not what they do. You see, when he utters those words, this man, no doubt, has seen many people die on crosses before. But when Jesus uttered those words, he he knew there was something different about him. Who but God alone would express such grace? Who but God would express such love? Who but God would express such mercy in the face of such hatred? Clearly this man was one to Christ and his heart was changed. But what was he to do? Well, I'll tell you what he did not do. He did not call out to Mary to help him. You know, there's many a poor soul in their dying hour will call out to Mother Mary to help them. My friends, Mary is of no use to us. And uh, Mary was as sinful as, as any of us are. And, and unfortunately, she cannot be of any help to us in the end. I'll tell you what else he did not do. He did not succumb to some religious rite. He couldn't be reached by some holy water or some anointing oil or, or by some priestly ritual. He was beyond all of that. He couldn't be baptized. He was nailed to a cross. His hands and his feet were tied down. He couldn't go to a synagogue. He couldn't go to a church. You see, there are people who think, well, I'll get right with God and I'll go to a church. But this man couldn't go to a church. In fact, there was no good work that he could do that would in any way make any kind of amends before God. In the words of Arthur W. Pink, he could not walk in the paths of righteousness. For there was a nail through either foot. He could not perform any good works. For there was a nail through either hand. He could not turn over a new leaf. And live a better life. For he was dying. So what we discover is here's a man who could draw nothing from his past to help him. He could rely on nothing in his present to help him. And he had no future upon which to promise. So his case was absolutely lost. His past was riddled with sin. His present was absolutely hopeless. His future was all but over. And he had to somehow, someway get right with God. And he did the only thing he knew what to do in that absolutely hopeless situation. He called out to Christ for forgiveness. I want you to understand tonight, even though you're not nailed to a cross, your past is of no good to God. I want you to understand tonight, even though you're not nailed to a cross, that your present is of no good to God. You say, well, I'm in church, aren't I? Church isn't going to do it for you. You say, well, I've been baptized. Well, bully for you, but being baptized is not going to do it for you. You say, well, I've done good works. I'm very glad that you have. But those good works are insufficient to meet your soul's need. You can't rely on your past. You can't rely on your present. And you can't rely on your future. For the Bible says, boast not thyself of tomorrow. For thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. You must do as this man did. And cry out to the Savior. Notice in verses 40 to 42, how he had a change of mind. It says, but the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Now having had a 
a change of mind. This man did the most remarkable thing. And I want you to, we want to dissect this little section because there's a lot of, a lot of truth in here and there's a lot of pointers here as to this man's thinking. Notice, first of all, he expressed a belief in the future life. You see, he anticipated that having been judged by man, he would ultimately be judged by God. He says to his fellow, Dost not thy fear God? Notice he doesn't say, Dost not thy fear Caesar? Dost thou not fear Pontius Pilate? There's no point in referencing Caesar and Pontius Pilate. Their judgment was passed. He says, Dost not thy fear God? book of Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's where salvation begins. It begins when we understand that we're going to stand before God someday. That we're going to give an account of ourselves unto God. That we're going to be in the presence of the one who by the breath of his mouth created this entire universe and every living thing on this entire planet. The one in whom we live and move and have our being is going to call us to his judgment throne someday and we're going to give an answer unto him. Dost not thy fear God? You should fear God. Hebrews 9, 27 says, It is appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment. Then I want you to notice something else. Not only did he express belief in a future life, he came under conviction concerning his own sinfulness. Notice he says, Dost not thou fear God, in verse 40, seeing thou art in the same condemnation. I want to say something to you tonight. You are not in the place of salvation until you understand that you're under condemnation. You cannot be saved until you realize you're lost. Do you know, do you ever go out, man, with your wife and you've lost your way? You know how this goes, don't you? And your wife says, stop and ask someone. And your meal pride kicks in. And what do you say to her? Say, it's all right, I know where I'm going. So you drive a little further and you get even a little bit more lost. And she says, would you not stop and ask someone? And you say, no, no, no. Listen, I know this area. I've been here before. And she'll say it again. Will you not stop and, and, and ask this lady? Ah, there's a lady there. Why don't you? Oh, no, I don't need to. You see, here's the problem. He's unwilling. The, the driver's unwilling to admit he's lost. And until he's willing to admit he's lost, he's in no position to be saved from the loss. He's in no position to find his way. And so it is in salvation. You're not ready for salvation until you realize condemnation. No one takes a pill until they have a headache. Isn't that right? Look with me in John chapter 3. John's gospel in the third chapter. John's gospel chapter 3. Here we come to the words of the Lord Jesus. He's in dialogue with the Pharisee leader, the ruler Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this is the man to whom he uh, tells that he must be born again. And verse 17 and 18, uh, we read this. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, 
but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But I want you to notice these words. But he that believeth not is condemned already. Notice that word. Condemned already. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You see, sometimes people come to a meeting and they say, that preacher condemned me. I want you to understand, you were condemned ever before you came to the meeting. You were condemned ever before you put your coat on. You were condemned ever before you got in your car. You were condemned ever before you came through the doors of this church. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, it's not me who's condemning you. You're condemned already. Until we recognize our condemnation, there is no hope of our salvation. Dost not thy fear God, saying that thou art in the same condemnation? And then notice thirdly, he testified of Christ's innocence. He says, we die indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man, verse 41, hath done nothing amiss. This is the constant testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, right throughout his entire life, right throughout his Passion Week indeed. Peter, writing of him in his epistle, says this, For even hereunto ye are called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin. Neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled by these thieves and others, Reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously, who in his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye are healed. Can I say to you tonight, if you're ever going to be saved, you'll have to recognize that you are guilty and that he is innocent. That you are sinful and that he is sinless. That you are unholy and he is holy. That you are a sinner and he is separate from sinners. If ever you're going to be saved, you'll have to acknowledge who he is in contrast to who you are. And then fourthly, he recognized something of the deity of Christ. I want you to see this. He says unto Jesus in verse 42, notice this word, Lord. He calls him Lord. And by that title, he indicates his belief that Jesus truly is the Messiah. That he really is the King of the Jews. That he is the Christ of God. That he was the Son of God. That he's the Son of the Father. You know, Paul, writing to the Corinthian church, says this, Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Ghost. I wonder tonight, are you one of those people for whom Jesus is accursed? For whom Jesus is a swear word. For whom Jesus is a profanity. Is Jesus the first name that you pull out of your vocabulary when you want to express frustration or anger or grief? Is Jesus accursed by you? Or is Jesus your Lord tonight? This man recognized him as Lord. 
And he sees him as his only hope, as his saviour. Notice what he says, Lord, remember me. He doesn't say, Lord, exalt me or honour me or bless me or enrich me. He says, Lord, remember me. He just wants to be remembered in eternity. He just wants to be thought upon, to be graced by God, to be favoured by Christ, to be forgiven by him. And then here's something really remarkable. He anticipated the second coming. Look what he says. Lord, remember me when thou comest. Not when thou goest. (laughs) Very important, the wording, when thou comest. He anticipates the second coming. You see, even in that hour as the Lord Jesus was about to breathe his last, this man knew that the world had not seen the last of Jesus. Friend, if you think this world has seen the last and heard the last of Jesus Christ, think again. For he's coming. And he's coming soon. And all the signs which seem to indicate that his coming is close and and drawing in upon us day by day. What a remarkable faith this man had. And notice he had faith in Christ not only as his saviour, but as his sovereign. He says, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. There's the messianic hope. You see, every Jew in Israel would have been taught that when the Messiah came, he was coming to establish his kingdom upon the earth. And even the disciples at this point had given up all hope of an earthly kingdom. But here is this thief on the cross. He says, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. You see, he still has this hope that there's a kingdom coming and that Christ is the king who's bringing the kingdom. You see, here was the crowd gathered around his feet. Here were the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the religious leaders of Israel who thought that they had proven that Jesus could not be the chosen of God by virtue of the fact that they had put him to death. And here's this man on the cross and he says, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Now I want to say something briefly about the notion of this man's conversion as a deathbed conversion. You see, some people, and I admit we preachers often encourage this or give this impression. Some people often refer to the thief on the cross in terms of an 11th hour conversion. They will say to people, well, you know, even the thief on the cross got saved just in the 11th hour, just at the last minute. He was able to come into the kingdom. Now, I don't doubt for one moment that there are some people who are saved in an 11th hour conversion. Don't get me wrong. But I would not pin my hopes upon it. You see, when you think about it, as you look at this scene in Luke's gospel, just as surely as one man was saved in this scene, another standing at exactly the same ground was eternally lost. And furthermore, I want you to understand that this man did not wait till his last opportunity to be saved, but he was saved at the first opportunity. So don't point to this man and say, well, look at this fellow. He waited till he was nearly dead and then he called upon the Savior and the Savior saved him. That's not what he did. This man was near death for sure, but this is his first encounter with Christ. He wasn't saved at the last. He was saved at the first. 
so that we say to you tonight, Behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. You see, you can come to the end of your life and get this, God can refuse you. And I've said this before from this pulpit. It's possible to come to the end of your days and call out to Christ and him refuse you. Listen to Psalm 66 and verse 4. He says, I also will choose their delusions. I will, not Psalm, sorry, Isaiah 66, 4. I also will choose their delusions. I will bring their fears upon them because when I called, none did answer. When I speak, they did not hear, but they did evil before mine eyes and chose that in which I delighted not. You see what God says there? I will choose their delusions. Say, what does that mean? Well, we get a a signal of that in 2 Thessalonians. When Paul is talking about the second coming of the Lord, he talks there about the rise of Antichrist and the rule of this uh, this quasi-religious figure that's to come that will rule the world. And he talks about how that when he comes... Those who give their loyalty to him will be deceived, it says, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. Now listen to what it says. Because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved, for this reason, God shall send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Understand what I'm saying to you tonight. It is possible tonight that God in your last hour will send you a delusion. It's possible in your last hour that God won't allow you to be saved. It's possible that Christ would come and you be left behind and God say I'm not letting you in because you you love sin rather than loving the Savior you didn't take you didn't accept the love of the truth but you dwelt in unrighteousness I'm going to cause you to believe the lie of the Antichrist so that you'll be damned and you don't want to be damned you want to be saved you see you can come to the end and God may refuse you And it may be at the 11th hour that God, God damns your soul. You must never presume, friends, upon the grace of God. If you need to get saved, if you need to be saved, you need to be saved today. No more messing about. No more fooling around. No more trying to pull the wool over other people's eyes. No more trying to convince those in the pew beside you that you're really a Christian when you know in your heart of hearts you're not a Christian. There's no point in deceiving others and then ultimately being deceived yourself. You need to be saved and you need to be saved today. Well, the first cross indicates a man who was who died in sin. In the second cross we see a man who died to sin. But in the third cross we see the one who died for sin. Here's what we read. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. You know, this thief's salvation would not have been possible were it not for the man in the middle cross. If it wasn't that set before him was the suffering Savior, the Lamb of God, 
bearing the sin debt of the world, being sacrificed as the substitute for sinners. And notice, first of all, the word today. The Lord says, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. That very day, that thief was going to enter into paradise. He didn't need to face purgatory. His soul was not going to be put to sleep somehow and that he was going to be anesthetized from all that lay before him. No, he was consciously going into paradise today. The Lord Jesus says this day, today you're going to be with me in paradise. You see, I want you to get this. For the Christian to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. What a comforting truth this is. You know, we've had some friends in our fellowship who've lost loved ones this week and who've been bereaved. And yet with all, they're comforted. That those dear ones are in the glory today. That they're with the Savior in paradise. You see, the Christian goes straight to heaven. And indeed, the thief might well have been comforted enough by such a thought. But Jesus didn't say to him, and I want you to get this. He didn't just say, today shalt thou be in paradise. Is that what he said? He said, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. With me in paradise. The psalmist says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You see, that's what makes heaven, heaven. You know, there are Christians and, and people who have a very fleshly and, and, and a very worldly view of what heaven's going to be like, as if heaven's going to be some grand theme park in the sky, as if somehow or others it's going to be like Alton Towers or, or Disney World. All day. Listen, put that thought out of your head. Heaven isn't any such thing. Understand that heaven is about Christ. It's about being with him. That's what makes heaven, heaven. He will be with us and we shall be with him. And he is with us every part of the journey. Yes, it's comforting to know that when we die, we'll be free from all our suffering and all our sorrowing and all our sins, that there will be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away. For sure, that's a blessing. For sure, that's an encouragement. For sure, that's a comfort. Yet it is good to know also that we shall be reunited with our loved ones. It'll be a good thing to see those who have gone before and those who have been redeemed. But by far the best of all is this. We shall be with Jesus. I love what the psalmist says, Asaph. Psalm 73, 25. He says, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon the earth that I desire beside thee. You know, when I get to heaven, I'm looking forward to seeing some of my dear friends and family who have gone before But the thing I want to see most of all is the Lord Jesus. You know, in the book of Revelation 22 and 3, it says, And there shall be no more curse, speaking of the new Jerusalem and of the eternal state. It says, There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And I love this line, And they shall see his face. Do you want to see his face? Do you want to look into the eyes of the one who loved you, 
and gave himself for you, well, then you need his forgiveness. And you need his grace. And you need his mercy upon your lives. My dear friends, this is the Christian hope to see Jesus. Now, most of us who are Christians have appreciated many of the thousands of hymns that were written by the famous blind songwriter Fanny Crosby. Near the end of the 19th century, Fanny Crosby was visiting the Lake Chautauqua in in, uh, western New York State, and there she met a man by the name of John R. Sweeney. After a busy day at a meeting, both were taking a rest on the front porch of their hotel when John asked a very interesting question of this blind Christian. He said, Fanny, do you think we'll recognize our friends in heaven? Initially, Fanny Crosby was very positive. And she then added this, John, that's not what you really want to know. You're wondering how an old lady who has been blind all her life could even recognize one single person let alone her Lord and Savior. She said, well, I've given this a lot of thought, and I don't think I'll have a problem. But if I do, when I get to heaven, I'm going to look around, and when I see the one who I think is my Savior, I'm going to walk up to him and say, may I see your hands. And when I see the nail prints in the hands of my Savior, then I'll know that I find Jesus. And from that thought, Fanny Crosby wrote the words to the hymn, I shall know him, a hymn that we sing in church to this day. When my life work is ended, and I cross the swelling tide, when the bright and glorious morning I shall see, I shall know my Redeemer when I reach the other side, and a smile shall be the first to welcome me. I shall know him, I shall know him, and redeemed by his side I shall stand. I shall know him, I shall know him by the print of the nails in his hands. Today shalt thou be with me in paradise, and we shall know him. But before we close this evening, I would be a delinquent preacher if I did not ask you sincerely, do you know him? Do you know him tonight? Does he know you? In eternity, will you be with him? Or will you be without him? Do as this thief did all those years ago. Friend, tonight recognize who he is, a great saviour. And who you are, a great sinner. And call out, Lord, please remember me. When thou comest into thy kingdom, you'll find that he is the most gracious of saviors. And he will answer that prayer if you utter it sincerely. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts this evening.